0: Turning your Bibles to Acts 28, verses 17 through 31. This is the 85th, and uh, Lord willing, it'll be the final sermon from the book of Acts that we began uh, a couple of years ago. June 4th, 1942, 1025, in the morning, dive bombers from the USS Enterprise um, located three Japanese aircraft carriers the decks crowded with planes, bombs stacked, and um, gas lines refueling. And in five minutes, all three, the pride of the Japanese Navy, uh, were were destroyed and sunk to the bottom of the ocean. A few minutes later, the fourth was located and it was sunk. And the whole course of the Second World War in the Pacific was reversed. Victory would come, but it would, and it would be at, at, at great cost, but nevertheless, victory was ensured by the outcome of the Battle of Midway. Uh, there would be a, a long fight, but uh, the determination and productive capacity of, uh, of the United States all but ensured that victory would come. There's a parallel with uh, that battle of Midway and the apostle Paul's arrival in Rome. If you look at verse 31, it says that uh, Paul, imprisoned, was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That is the point. The point here is the victory has been won. He's arrived in Rome, uh, the capital of the known world for the apostles. There are battles that will remain. There, there will be government persecution, there will be mob violence, there will be forces of nature to overcome as the Apostle Paul did in his journey to Rome. But the point here is that there, there isn't anything in all the world that is going to stop uh, the progress of and victory of the gospel. You could liken it to the, uh, the Allied landings in France in 1944, the Battle of Gettysburg. Turning, these are turning points. Years of fighting remain. Centuries of, of spiritual battle are ahead for the church, but the results are guaranteed. That's the message of the book of Acts. So the Apostle Paul, in our immediate passage, he's going to engage with the, uh, the Jewish-Roman religious leadership. And he will be presenting the gospel to all Jewish and non-Jewish as he points us ahead uh, to the church's future. And we want to look at this under several headings, pre-evangelism, evangelism, evangelism, uh, mission strategy, and then ultimate triumph. So let's start with what I'm uh, labeling as pre-evangelism in verses 17 through 22. What the Apostle Paul sets out to do initially as he arrives in Rome is to to, uh, overcome the false impressions that the Jewish leadership may have. He wants to open the door for the gospel. He wants to clear the air. He wants to defend himself in order to open the door for the gospel. And this is sometimes what the church has had to do over the century. Uh, For example, Augustine wrote City of God to defend the Christian church against the charge that that uh, the the church was responsible for the fall uh, of Rome. Uh, Calvin dedicated his Institutes to Francis I, setting forth the case, uh, King of France, Catholic King of France, setting forth the case for the orthodoxy of Protestantism. Francis Schaeffer's first three books were a kind of pre-evangelism. His books, uh, "The God Who Is There," "He Is There," "He Is Not Silent," and "Escape." Uh, from reason. And, and that's what the Apostle Paul is, is doing here. He is defending himself in order to open the door for the presentation of the gospel. The Jewish community in Rome consisted of some twenty to 50,000 uh, Jews, it's estimated, who were distributed into 11 synagogues. So n- what he does in terms of pre-evangelism is, number one, he answers the probable exactus- accusations that would be leveled against him in verse 17 through 20. He wants to nip the, the, uh, the false impressions in the bud. So verse 17, after three days, just three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Rome into the hands of the Romans. Verse 18. And when they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. So he's saying, uh, number one, I did nothing against the Jews. Number two, the Romans have nothing against me. And then number three, verse 19, but because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. But understand, my appeal to Caesar is not in order to bring some accusation against my Jewish brethren. It was merely to defend myself. So I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge. That's a legal term. I wasn't bringing charges against my own nation. I was merely answering. And, 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 and so understand that. Um, I, I, I had nothing against my own people. Uh, verse uh, uh, 20, for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. That is the hope of Israel that is realized in Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah. So what's he doing? He's answering the probable accusations that are going to come to him from the Jewish leadership in Rome. Uh, Number two, he finds Jewish leaders wish to avoid controversy in verses 21 and 22. So why would they want to avoid controversy? Well, in the late 40s AD, the emperor Claudius had banished all the Jews from Rome. In 54, they were allowed to return. And so the leadership is nervous that that they would be risking expulsion again if they get involved in some kind of a heated controversy. So they don't want to repeat the mistake of the past. It was riots in light of of the arrival of Christianity in Rome that these riots had broken out, and so they don't want to get into another debate that's likely to overheat and, and, and lead to some kind of violence again. So the, they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. Now all of the modern commentators doubt that that's true, that surely word has gotten to, to them about, about Paul, whom they regard as a heretic. But they say, we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect we know that everywhere it is spoken against. So what they're saying is, look, we don't want any trouble. We're comfortable. We like things the way they are. We kind of reach an equilibrium with the Roman government, but we're willing to hear you. Um, and, and indeed, the, 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 so the, 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 the strategy of the apostle is in fact working here. They're, they're willing to hear from him he has uh, answered uh, objections to the uh, point that they uh, e- even though they have heard some, some negative language about uh, the christians they call it a sect in verse 22 that's not a flattering term it's, it's the word from which we get the root word it's the root word from which we get our, the word heresy and they speak of it being spoken against everywhere and yet they are willing to hear so, about this, then, we just want to say that sometimes we are forced in this position where because our message or our methods are being misunderstood, that we have to go to bat for ourselves, we have to defend ourselves, we have to clarify what we stand for, what we do, why we do it. Uh, we have to clarify what our what our message is I- exactly because it 's often misunderstood. We do this in order to try to gain a hearing. Years ago, we, we uh, started a downtown uh, Bible study for the business community, and we did it because there was so much in the way of misperceptions about us that had been circulating around in the community. So we started this Bible study in order to clarify. It went on for 20 years. It was uh, both pre-evangelism, this is, this is uh, who we really are and what we really believe, and it was evangelism as well, presenting the gospel week in and week out, and uh, was fairly successful in, in removing uh, some of the misconceptions under which others were laboring about ourselves and about our ministry. Now, often that kind of thing can be futile, and yet it's, it's worthwhile to go to the trouble Uh, to ensure that it is the gospel that is offensive and not our ineptitude uh, or uh, our insensitivity. So so number one, pre-evangelism. Having cleared the air, the Apostle Paul then goes on to what we might call evangelism proper. So verse 23, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging, uh, seems to have been a kind of a private apartment, though he is chained to um, a guard, uh, that is lodging in greater numbers. So again, the, the, the strategy was successful. They are coming, and they are coming. Uh, there's a crowd of them coming to hear what the Apostle Paul has to say. He's gained the hearing that he sought from morning till evening all day long. He expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets, verse 23. So let's let's look at this evangelism first in terms of his method. It says he expounded. That's the main verb. And then there are two participles, testifying and seeking to convince, seeking to persuade, this, this, this is strong language. This is not the Apostle Paul just telling stories. I uh, might point out as well it 's not the Apostle Paul performing miracles. he 's just got through healing people on the island of Malta. He is capable of working miracles, but, uh, but the Apostle Paul understands the limitations of miracles. Uh, they, they, they can cause some temporary and superficial excitement that 's not the way he 's going to go about presenting the Gospel to these religious uh, leaders. What's he doing? He's like a lawyer arguing a case. He is setting forth the facts. He is urging them. He is seeking to persuade them. He wants to convince them. This This is the pattern of the Apostle Paul's ministry. I believe it's meant to be the pattern of all ministry in all places and in all times. We appeal to the minds of people, to reason. We seek to persuade them of these things. We're like a lawyer in a courtroom presenting our case. That's the kind of language that's being used here of, of the Apostle Paul. And remember, throughout the book of Acts, we've seen him reasoning and explaining and proving. We're, we're not interested in superficial excitement. We're not interested in just telling people um, you know, pleasant stories about religious subjects. No, the pattern that, that we have in the New Testament is, is that of the appeal to, the, to, to minds with reasonable, logical, coherent arguments about Christ and sin and God and, 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 and humanity's great need of redemption and that that redemption has arrived. So that, that's his method. It's per, it's, he seeks to persuade those to whom he is addressing himself. And then let's look further at the, at the message again, verse 23, it's the kingdom of God. He sought to persuade them about the the kingdom of God, Uh, meaning what? Well, I think the main thing would be that that kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. It's not a carnal kingdom. It's not a political kingdom. Remember, still in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 6, the, the apostles are still laboring under this misconception that the kingdom of Christ is going to be an earthly, worldly, political kingdom. And, he, and he, he dissuades them of that. My kingdom is not of this world, he said to them at an earlier time. And yet that was the conception that, that was commonplace in those days, that, that when Messiah came, the Messiah would drive out the Romans and establish his worldwide kingdom. That's not what's going to happen. That's not the nature of the kingdom of God. So he's explaining to them the kingdom of God, and he's preaching to them, He's trying to convince them about Jesus, that he is the king of that kingdom, that the king of the kingdom is a, is a suffering Messiah whose death atones for the sin of the world, whose resurrection conquers sin and the devil and, and, and death itself, whose spirit regenerates and sanctifies believers, and, and whose church gathers those believers together into a community. He would have spoken to them about the suffering and the triumph of the Messiah, um, as in previous sermons, citing Psalm 22 and uh, Psalm 110 and Isaiah 53, citing the law of Moses and the prophets, in other words, the whole Old Testament. Uh, So what's uh, what's the apostle Paul doing? He's pressing them. He's he's urging them. He's, He's arguing with them. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's an urgency and a fervor about his pleading with them that they, would, they, that they would come to understand, that they would understand the gospel, that they would understand their need of a Savior, that they would understand the kind of Savior that Jesus is, that they would turn from their sins and put their faith in Him and surrender to Him as Savior and Lord. This is the way the Apostle Paul goes about with the, such, such urgency and fervor which uh, Matthew Henry says is the most proper and profitable method of preaching. So we look at the, the method of evangelism, the, the message of evangelism, and then, and then the results. In verse uh, 24, And some were convinced. We, sh- we shouldn't understand that to mean that they were converted, because it doesn't seem that they are. They were convinced, at least at some level, by what he said, but others disbelieved. So there's mixed results and verse 25, in disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement and then the second half of verse uh, 25. So what I think Luke as the recorder of these events is, is saying that this departure is char- the characteristic Jewish response even up to this day some of them found his arguments compelling, but, it, but, it, but in the end, they walk away. They departed. They walk away from the gospel as Christians have understood it. And so the title of this sermon is The Gospel Unhindered, but that doesn't mean it's unopposed. And so it has been all through the centuries that, that the vast majority of the physical descendants of Abraham have not believed that Jesus is the Messiah. They've not uh, surrendered to him as Savior and Lord. They have rejected the claims of Christ and the claims as proclaimed by the Christian church. That brings us to number three, then we have a glimpse of the Apostle Paul's mission strategy. So this disappointing result leads to a a strategic decision, one which initially was made back in chapter uh, 13 at uh, Pisidian Antioch, So continuing in verse 25, the Apostle Paul says, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. Now he's quoting Isaiah chapter 6. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. Uh, The Apostle Paul has tweaked the language, tweaked the language of Isaiah chapter 6. He has turned the imperatives into indicatives. He has shifted the emphasis on the sovereignty of God. In, in other words, Isaiah was told, go so that, go and preach so that they will not perceive or, or, or understand or see. He's, he's turning that from the responsibility for the unbelief from sovereign purposes of God, which are still present even as he cites it, to the human responsibility for not believing. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, And, and, and here's the key, and their eyes they have closed. Who has closed? they have closed they're responsible for their unbelief they're responsible for having ears that barely hear and eyes that are closed and for their hearts having grown dull and and uh, incapable of perceiving for having hard hearts in other words so they, uh, they, they they have closed their eyes lest continuing in verse 27 they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. Who's responsible for this? Well, the Apostle Paul saying they are responsible. There would be no blame shifting here. You won't be able to say, "Oh, it's because of it's because of, of the sovereignty of God, or or because of the inadequacy of the gospel, or because God didn't present me with convincing arguments, or because He didn't send the right people in into our lives." Uh, no. The responsibility for unbelief in the case of these religious leaders and and in the case for every one of us, if we are unbelieving, we're responsible for our unbelief. There will be no other plea on the Day of Judgment. We will have heard but refused to hear. We would have seen but refused to see. We will have perceived but refused to allow that perception to alter anything. We've been too comfortable. We don't want the disruption. Uh, we, we, we don't want the dislocation that will take place. We won't, we're not interested in the cost that will be involved in, 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 in following Jesus in repentance and faith. You see, they, they, they have their heritage, they have their family, they, uh, they have their outlook, they have the lives that they're living, and, and they see what will take place if they were to believe this gospel, and so they refuse it. They harden their hearts against it, they close their eyes, they shut their ears. And and the point of the Apostle Paul, the way that he's citing it, is is to say to every one of us, we are responsible for our our response to the gospel. We are responsible for our response. The way that we respond, the buck stops for that with us, with our individual choices, with our decisions, the choices that we make. Provide all the reason that will be necessary come judgment day, when those choices will be evaluated. We are responsible for them. And so, verse 28, Therefore let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. So what he's saying is, I'm turning to a more fruitful work. They will also listen. Who? These Gentiles. That will be the fruitful field in which I'm going to concentrate my efforts. There's no sense, he's saying, in beating my head against a wall. And I can't be everywhere all the time. I can't can't do everything. I'm I'm, I'm a finite individual. There are, are limitations. And so I can't be pursuing endlessly those who are disinterested, those who are disinclined, those who are discontent. I, I can't do it. A church could spend all of its time going after uh, unhappy, hard-hearted people. Well, you, can, you can't do that. Or going after those who absolutely refuse to believe. There comes a point at which you cut your losses and say, all right, we're not, we're not going to make any progress there. And so, and so we say no to yet, an, an, another, you know, an, another, yet another meeting to discuss. It reminds me of Nehemiah chapter 6 and Nehemiah dealing with the Sanballat. Sanballat, the enemies of the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem, when the exiles had returned from captivity, says, come and let us meet together in the plain of Anno. Uh, But as uh, the narrator says, they were intending to do, uh, Nehemiah says, they are intended to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them saying... I am doing a great work, I cannot come down, why should, I, wh- why should the work stop while I leave and come down to you? So again, what's Nehemiah doing? He's cutting his losses. We've had enough, enough discussion about these things. Uh, you have no intention of listening, you have no intention of hearing, you have no intention of responding. All right, there are fruitful fields to which we can go and concentrate our efforts and focus our, our resources, and so we are going to go to them. It's interesting around the world right now. You know, the, 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 there's fruitful fields in Korea, fruitful fields in Indonesia, fruitful fields in mainland China and in Taiwan. Great harvest taking place in Africa and uh, in Latin America. But uh, Western Europe, uh, the northeast and the northwest, not so much. So it does raise the issue, Uh, what are we as a, you know, a a church, as a community of faith, what are we to do? I think the Apostle Paul's strategy here is that, well, you go where you're bearing fruit. You don't give up on the others, they'll never give up on Jewish evangelism. Uh, The church hasn't given up on that to this day, and you don't don't abandon these other fields, you maintain the witness, you continue to work there. But there is some wisdom, obviously, at work here where you, you go to where you're going to bear fruit. And, and, and you don't keep banging your head against the wall. You don't keep uh, trying to persuade the unpersuadable. You don't, you don't try to gain a hearing with those who will not listen. And so that's the apostle's message here. He's going to go uh, where he will be heard. So he says uh, again that, uh, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And it's a, it's a it's a it's a warning to us as well. You can you can refer to this as a kind of judicial hardness, a decision led by God to just abandon people to their unbelief. It's it's just a reminder that you don't trifle with God, and you don't trifle with the things of God, and you don't you don't behave as though you have endless opportunities to do the right thing, endless opportunities to repent, endless opportunities to believe. You know. I've, I'm sure that every cohort in college has encountered this, this mentality that says, Well, I have, I have time. I want to live it up right now. I'm, I'm in a party school. I'm going to have a good time. And, and when I get older, then I'm, going to, then I'm going to get serious about the things of God. You've probably heard that. Someone in their late teens talking in that way. This is party time. I'm in my teens. I'm in my 20s. And then, then they get married, and, and so that, then it changes somewhat. Then they're saying, well, the, after we get settled as a, as a couple, then they start having children, and you know, then it's once we get through with the busyness of child rearing, and on, the delays go on and on, and eventually we just harden our own hearts, and God then confirms us judicially in our hardness, uh, because we're just determined to, to remain autonomous. Uh, to remain captaining our own ship and, and ter- determining our own direction and our own lives. And we hear again and again, particularly, uh, this is a particularly, uh, I think, a uh, uh, warning to those of us brought up in the church and who have the opportunity to hear the gospel read and preached Sunday after Sunday, brought up in the church, hearing it your whole life, and yet failing to respond, failing to listen, failing to respond and, receive, and, and, and believe. And and presuming the whole time, well, I'll have another opportunity. There will yet be another chance. Uh, Trifling with the things of God, toying with them as as it were, and and acting as though that we had the capacity even to ensure a a positive response down the road after years of hardness and rejection and 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 rebelliousness. Uh, It's just not the case. And so it is here. It's, it's quite startling when you, when you think of it. It's quite startling. Uh, we don't think of the gospel in these terms. The apostle Paul is saying, no more, no more. We are turning from this group to that group because this group won't listen. It's not what we'd expect. We, we expect per- perpetual graciousness. And like I say, I think that they continue. We do continue even with the groups that are hardened against the gospel. We continue, but nevertheless, it's quite startling that there is this judgment that's made, the Apostle Paul being led by the Holy Spirit. Notice the doctrine of inspiration. The Holy Spirit. Now, that's through the prophet Isaiah, but who is speaking through the prophet Isaiah? The Holy Spirit was right. You see that in verse 25? In saying to your fathers, the Holy Spirit was speaking in terms of this um, judicial hardness. You have your opportunity. Today, you know, that's Bible language. Today is the day of salvation. The day has arrived. Now is the time to respond. Don't presume. Don't think, oh, well, maybe tomorrow, maybe the next week, maybe the next year, maybe the next decade, maybe when I'm old. Uh, Today is the day of salvation. And those who continued in unbelief, in rebellion, in uh, pr- protecting their autonomy, protecting uh, their, 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 uh, their own uh, personal sovereignty, there, there comes a point at which there is no recovery. And so th- this is set, the direction is set, and for generations, Jews in mass, there's an exception that's a remnant, but in mass, apart from the remnant, in mass, reject Christ and the gospel. They depart. So, so I would say, when you leave this building, do not depart. Do not walk away from the offer of the gospel. Don't walk away from uh, the opportunity to bow and to surrender to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and receive the forgiveness of sins a reconciliation with God and the gift of eternal life and, 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 and all the extras of, of, of contentment and peace with God and joy in the Holy Spirit. Don't depart. And then the last point, the hint of ultimate victory. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. The apostle Paul is under house arrest. This is now four to five years that he has been detained. And just think of it, think think of the frustration for somebody who's a, who's an active personality personality like the Apostle Paul. He wanted to go to Spain to present uh, to, to plant churches in Spain. He never got there. Think of all that he could have been doing during those four years, establishing more churches all around the rim of the Mediterranean. All that he could have done, he could not do because he was imprisoned. Why was he imprisoned? Doesn't God know any better? Doesn't he know that this is the most effective evangelist the church has ever seen? Why would he allow him to be trapped and imprisoned by... the the Roman government for such an extended period of time. What was the divine purpose? Well, finally, the apostle Paul does understand the divine purpose. Let's just finish off verse 31. In prison, he's proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about our Lord Jesus Christ "With with all boldness and without hindrance. So here's the kinds of things that he will later say, Philippians 1. I want you to know verse 12, brothers, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's talking about his imprisonment. My imprisonment has done what? He has served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. Those who were guarding the apostle Paul had all heard the gospel. And to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. Then he talks about other Christian brethren who had been emboldened by his imprisonment. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. In fact, he says at the end of the same epistle, Philippians 4.22, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. What's the result of the apostle Paul being in Rome? There are converts in the palace as well as in the army because of the Apostle Paul. Meanwhile, while he's in prison, he writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. More good has been done by those epistles than, than were ever done in all of the Apostle Paul's public ministry. That's not where it stops. He's released from prison for a short period of time. Uh, during that time, he then writes First uh, and 2 Timothy and Titus. And as he's writing 2 Timothy, he's rearrested. And but he writes this about his rearrest. He says, I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. No, and as he writes his letters under arrest, eventually. The Emperor Nero has the Apostle Paul beheaded, we believe, 64 AD. Why does Luke not have an account of the martyrdom of the Apostle Paul? Because he wanted to end on a positive note. Of what? Uh, these These words at the end, he's preaching with all boldness and without hindrance. And the point is that this gospel is unstoppable. Nothing could keep Paul out of Rome and from Rome to the ends of the earth. The great Augustine rebuked the pessimists, the naysayers of his day, saying this, the clouds roll with thunder that the house of the Lord shall be built throughout the earth. And these frogs, talking about the pessimists, sit in their marsh and croak, we are the only Christians. Well, we're not the only Christians. Uh, What were there, a dozen at the foot of the cross? And then the gospel spread throughout the Middle East, and then it spread around the rim of the Mediterranean, and Thomas went to India, others went up into Britain, and then up into Western Europe, and then into Central Europe, and then to Eastern Europe and into Russia. In More modern times, it spread into Africa, and then in Asia, as we uh, mentioned earlier. They speak of Africa becoming a Christian continent. Massive numbers of conversions taking place in Latin America and in Asia. No, the gospel is spreading over a billion people. Name the name of Christ. What Luke is saying at the end of his gospel is the gospel is unhindered and unbound. cannot be stopped. And we are but a part of this movement. And leaves us with the question, what part do we want to play in this great movement that ends with the kingdoms of this world having become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, that ends with the knowledge of the glory of God covering the earth as the waters cover the sea, as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice again in the glorious gospel of the blessed God. And, oh, Lord, we pray that we might be bold like the Apostle Paul in chains, that we would be courageous in our proclamation of your gospel, given how unhindered we are today in our opportunities. May those opportunities continue, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.